and let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Jude. And uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, go to the final book of the Bible, Revelation, and turn left, and the first book you will hit is Jude. But don't do it too fast, because you can uh, miss it. It's just about a page long. And while we're turning there, just a reminder, on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we're currently studying the Gospel according to Luke, and we'll do that tonight at 6 o'clock, each of you are invited. We'll just study two verses uh, this morning, but I want to read the first four in order to give us a little bit of context. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the gift of your word. We're so thankful to be able to turn to it, knowing that it will outlive the heavens and the earth, all of the theories, all of the philosophies, all of the grand ideas and schemes of men. And this is going to have the final say. And to be able to build our lives now and our eternities upon your truth, we're grateful. We're grateful that we never have to turn to your Bible uh, in and of ourselves with the limitations of our own uh, intellect, our own life experience, or whatever the limitations might be, but to be able to turn to it and to receive, Lord, from your Holy Spirit as our teacher. And we surrender ourselves now to him and to his voice and ask that in just the greatness of your grace that you would speak to us from this book of Jude this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Having finished uh, our study uh, of Paul's letter to the church at uh, Colossae, uh, my intention was to immediately, as I've tried to the last couple of times, uh, head into uh, the book of Exodus and established kind of a gleanings series through Exodus as we had done in Genesis. And there's about 20 or 27 or so sermons that uh, look like they would be a part of a series like that. But as I tried to head into it, there was just no life there presently in terms of making that our consideration for the next few months here in the fellowship. And so uh, I began to look and say, okay, Lord, I don't, I, I don't make that decision of where I'm going to take up your time and where I'm going to have an entire church spend uh, our focus. Uh, that's not a decision that I make. That's a decision I try to hear the Lord. And so began to look and to read and to read and to read and to look. And then 
uh, here looking at the book of Jude, I felt that, that life and that witness of the Spirit. And so, as best as I can hear the Lord, that is a heavily qualified statement. As best as I can hear the Lord, this is what we're supposed to study for the next uh, 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 few weeks. And, uh, and as I began to dig into the book, I, I can see the wisdom of it. Famously, Jude has been described as the single most overlooked bi- uh, book in the entire uh, Bible. And I don't have any particular reason to uh, doubt that at all. Because while the book of Jude contains a couple of very famous verses that the average Christian that has walked with God for a while recognizes immediately, the theme of the book, the message of the book as a whole, is one that is uh, largely overlooked and and can easily be lost uh, uh, today and uh, neglected as a theme. The verses that are familiar to us is in Jude uh, verse 3, as we read, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was delivered once and all for all to the saints. And so most of us recognize that. And then famously at the close of the book in verse 24, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The uh, issue that Jude is uh, addressing is found in verse 4, and uh, we'll wait to unpack it more fully next time that we're uh, together, but I think it's important to understand what the theme of the book is, to even understand why Jude begins the book with this particular uh, introduction in verses 1 and 2. False teachers and false Christians had infiltrated the church, uh, who he says, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we'll develop that more fully uh, in, in the future, but in a nutshell, they were teaching this, that you can live any way that you want as a Christian, engage in any and all sin uh, that you want to, and God's grace will uh, cover it. Uh, holiness, purity, and obedience to God's word don't really matter to God. After all, uh, God is love. <clears throat> or you can live any way that you want as a Christian and there really won't be any judgment for sin. We all end up in heaven one day regardless of the life that we live in the here and now. And so they abuse grace in their minimizing of sanctification, of the doctrine of holiness, <clears throat> the doctrine of righteousness, the doctrine of judgment. One of the very fascinating things to uh, recognize about the book of of Jude, and we'll notice it as we uh, study it, is that unlike most false teachers, these false Christians and false teachers that had infiltrated the church, they didn't deny Christianity on a theological level or or attack in any way Christian doctrine. They do not deny the deity of Christ. They do not deny the virgin birth of Christ. They don't deny uh, Jesus' miracles. They don't want to change Christianity 
on that level. But what they, but what they do deny is they deny the moral demands of Christianity. And when we are told there in verse four that they denied our Lord Jesus, the idea is that they denied his lordship in the Christian life. And they taught that you can know him as savior, but not as Lord. And that you needed to make him your savior, but you really didn't have, you don't have to take seriously his call to also make him the Lord of our lives. That it, it really doesn't matter how you live as long as you believe the right things. And contemporary illustrations of this kind of thing abound. Uh, recently, I heard about a, a young, younger age Christian who drove their friend to an abortion clinic to have an abortion, absolutely convinced that that was the Christian thing to do for their friend. And so here you have a Christian who has bought into this error, uh, accepting Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Simply understanding uh, Christianity solely through the prism of grace, but absolutely uh, neglecting the doctrines of righteousness and holiness. The very recently, perhaps you saw the headlines associated uh, with it yourself, where uh, the openly queer, uh, her description of herself, the openly queer Christian <clears throat> singer-songwriter who recently released an album that instantly became number one, the number one Christian album on iTunes, uh, uh, despite carrying a parental advisory for explicit lyrics. And she described the wonder, <clears throat> excuse me, the wonder of all of this in this way. The Lord works in weird ways, uh, my friend. And she is precisely and exactly the kind of person that Jude is warning about, who creep in unnoticed and then endeavor to influence Christians in this way, that it doesn't really matter what kind of life you uh, live as long as you believe the right things, that you don't have to give any kind of serious consideration to the moral demands of Christianity, that you do need to make him Jesus your savior, but you don't have to make him Lord. Now, uh, recently, one of our nation's largest evangelical Christian adoption and foster care agencies has surrendered their biblical definitions of marriage, <clears throat> the family, human sexuality, and gender, and will now place children in LGBTQ homes for adoption. So here they profess to be Christian, and they're going to place the highest endorsement possible upon homosexual marriage and transgender marriage by entrusting children into those unions, and by playing a, a part in now the indoctrination of children into a lifestyle that is sinful as defined by God and forbidden uh, by God. 
And the biggest problem in all of that is not that there are agencies that exist in order to provide these services to these kind of couples. There are plenty of those agencies. It is that something that identifies itself as Christian to the entire world then does so. And this is the kind of thing Jude is condemning. The idea that as Christians, it doesn't really matter how you live as long as you believe the right things. And you see uh, all of this happening all around us and happening to a devastating effect. Uh, this, This high profile person who claims to be a Christian but refuses to live a life consistent with Jesus' lordship. And then this Christian organization does the same. And then another, 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 until it becomes the norm within Christianity. Until uh, believing the right things, but not obeying those things, becomes the predominant view among Christians as opposed to being the minority view. And then what happens is the person who recognizes, the Christian who recognizes Jesus as both Savior and Lord, now feel like they are the fanatic for simply recognizing him as such and giving him that kind of a place and authority in their thinking, in their doing, in their Uh, living and in their believing. And this slow indoctrination that is occurring in Christianity uh, all around us, and, uh, uh, and because of it, we need a letter from the Holy Spirit like Jude's letter in order to resist it in our own lives and, and further to contend for the faith. And as I mentioned, the Holy Spirit, feeling like the Holy, believing that the Holy Spirit wanted us to go into this letter, uh, because I believe he wants us to do that, that keeps anybody from thinking that I am, uh, that I recognize this as a problem within our church in a dominant way. I don't, or that I'm uh, aiming at uh, people individually or trying to get something off of my chest. Nothing uh, of, of the sort at all. We see the, we see the indoctrination. We see the influence. We sense it uh, all uh, around us. And then there is the fairly recent article in the Atlantic magazine, in which a millennial-aged pastor uh, described her uh, path from being a staunchly pro-life and anti-abortion Christian and pastor to what she believes today, and that is namely, there isn't any circumstance under which it would be wrong or immoral for any woman to get an abortion. And this is someone who claims to speak for God, the God of the Bible, and claims to represent uh, this God. And again, these are exactly the kind of people Jude is warning us against and warning that we are not only not to come under their influence, and their influence is significant uh, today, but that we are to contend for the faith in the light of their uh, ungodly influence. 
And, and I give you these examples, and we could spend the entire morning giving you examples about Christian colleges, Christian seminaries, about entire Protestant denominations that have gone uh, liberal on all of these issues. And I say liberal by uh, uh, becoming unbiblical on, on all of these, uh, th- this very, very uh, issue uh, and, and in order to kind of help us see the prevalence of this kind of thing <clears throat> around us and how timely and necessary Jude's letter is for us today as we live in the midst of this kind of pressure, even upon us as Christians, not merely from those who claim to be without, but claim also to be within. And then all of this is to say nothing of the absolutely staggering number of individuals who claim to know Christ and to be a Christian, but there is absolutely zero evidence for his lordship uh, in their lives. And the problem is, is that these personal relationships with these kind of professing uh, Christians can be as influential for introducing this kind of leaven into our understanding of the Bible and our own relationship with the Lord as those who are uh, doing it on a national scale. And their influence in our life to endeavor to get us to think of Christian uh, Christianity only in terms of grace and love to the complete neglect of righteousness, holiness, the holiness of God that we have just uh, sung about and uh, which are, by the way, as we'll see next week, expressions of God's grace and his love as well. Never view God's commandments, his righteousness, his holiness as anything other than something that is gracious and something that is an expression uh, of his, uh, his love. But we'll look into that a little more uh, at, at another time. And it's knowing all of this that helps to not only understand uh, Jude's letter as a whole, but even to understand why he introduces the letter in the way that he does in verses 1 and 2. The opening part of his letter follows a a traditional template of, of letter writing in the ancient world. Uh, they would always uh, begin by, uh, the writer would by identifying him or herself uh, at the very start because they didn't write with pages, uh, pieces of paper. They were scrolls and you wouldn't want to scroll to the end of the letter to discover who wrote this letter. So they would begin by identifying themselves as the writer of the letter. They would then uh, speak uh, to, of who the letter was written to, dear so-and-so, then a word of greeting, and then a word of, of thanksgiving. And then the writer would uh, formally then uh, begin to uh, address the subject for which the letter was written. And Jude follows that template exactly, except that he doesn't include a word of, of thanksgiving. You notice as he identifies himself in verse 1 as the author uh, of the letter, he plainly does so. And his self-description is fascinating. He identifies himself as the brother of James. And you might look at that and you say, well, on the surface, that's not very much to go on. It's a fairly common 
common name. So we're trying to understand Jude, who he is, and all he tells us is that he's the brother of James. But actually, he's giving us quite a bit to to work with in, in, in all of that. His identification with James, and you notice he doesn't say James, uh, the son of so-and-so. That would narrow it down for you, and you'd know exactly what James he was talking about. No, he holds it just to the first name. And by virtue of his identification with James, it was intended to attest to Jude's authority for writing this kind of a letter and his authority for what he has written here to be taken seriously by all Christians. And because Jude simply refers to James as James without any further identification, this James had to be well known and had to be universally uh, known within the church and be uh, uh, universally recognized as an authority within the church. And all of those clues are, are very, very significant. So you then, you turn to the Bible and you begin to search for where is there a listing of two brothers within the Bible, one named Jude and the other named uh, James. And there's only one set of brothers mentioned in the Bible with the names Jude and James, and they are no, none other than two of the half-brothers of Jesus. Let me read a couple of verses to you that list, it, list Jesus' uh, brethren or half-brothers and sisters. In Mark chapter 6, verse 2, And three, and when the Sabbath had come, he, that is Jesus, began to teach in the synagogue. And many uh, hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which was given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, Uh, James, uh, Joses, and Judas, and Simon, the brother of, and are not his sisters here with us? And so they were offended at him. In Mark chapter 3, we read in verse 31, then his brothers and his mother, speaking of Jesus' brothers and mother, they came and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around Jesus. He was inside of the house, uh, surrounded by people teaching. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who are sat around him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my uh, uh, mother. And so Jesus was born uh, of Mary while she uh, was a virgin, but clearly after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary uh, then engaged in usual marital relationships and uh, produced a number of sons and daughters who were Jesus' half-brothers and half-sisters. They shared the same mother, but not the same father. And so the biblical record does not support the teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Not from one end of the Bible to the other does it do that. 
and of course Roman Catholicism, which perpetuates uh, this understanding uh, of Mary, has tremendous difficulty trying to explain away all these verses, and I could have read you more, talking about Jesus' mother and talking about his brothers and sisters. And one of the things that they'll say is that, well, um, Joseph brought uh, children from a previous marriage uh, into his marriage with Mary. Uh, That's reading pretty significantly into silence, I'd say, related to the Bible. But once you're trying to prove something that has no foundation in the Word of God, then you're going to struggle, and these are the the kind of things you're going to uh, have to come up with. Now, initially, Jesus' brothers did not accept him as the promised Messiah, uh, uh, Savior uh, of, of the world, the promised Messiah, of, of Israel. In John chapter uh, 7, it is the, there is the description of the Feast of Tabernacles that is approaching in Jerusalem, and the brothers are getting ready uh, to leave Nazareth and make their way to Jerusalem, and they ask Jesus when he's going to be uh, going. And his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, go to Jerusalem that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be openly known. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even uh, his brothers did not believe in him. But later, following his resurrection, they did. And, And it appears that James did uh, as the oldest of the, the children, apparently after uh, Jesus, that James did as a result of Jesus appearing to him specifically and personally following his resurrection. As it's uh, his post-resurrection appearances to people and groups of people as is described in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, uh, 15. And then James became uh, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul identifies him as being a pillar of the church uh, in Jerusalem. And ultimately James wrote what we know as the book of James in the New Testament. And so Jude didn't need to identify James any more fully in this introduction than, than he did uh, here uh, in, uh, in doing this. Everyone knew about James, and everybody knew the James he was talking about, and everyone knew that James had a brother by the name of Jude. I do think it, it, it is interesting to consider um, uh, James and Jude's uh, absolutely unfettered access to Jesus during his childhood, during his adolescence, during his uh, early adult life. They were raised with him in exactly the, the, uh, the, the same uh, uh, family in such close quarters. I mean, they would have been uniquely 
qualified to bear witness against his claims to deity, to bear witness against his claims uh, of sinlessness, and, and have found themselves later in life rejecting him and calling on others to reject him as Messiah in saying something like, listen, don't be fooled by him. I grew up with him, and he has a terrible temper. And he treats his mother like dirt, and he's an awful liar, and he's the laziest bum you'd ever want to ever run into in life. He certainly isn't Messiah material, and he certainly isn't Son of God material. And yet they didn't do it. And yet they saw nothing uh, of, of the sort related to his life, and instead they put their faith in him and became his disciples. Now, you might have noticed that in the listing uh, of the names of Jesus' half-brothers, as I read it a little bit earlier in the Gospels, that Jude is not called Jude in those listings. He's called uh, Judas in those listings uh, as the brother. And Judas was a very, very common uh, Jewish name in the ancient world. And Jude probably changed his name from Judas to Jude in order that he would not bear a name that had been so heavily stigmatized by virtue of the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. Uh, you'll notice that no Christians uh, name their children Judas. Uh, you notice now in human history that no one names their children Adolf for the same reason that a single individual in human history has completely uh, come to dominate the name and dominate it negatively that no one will touch it now for the, the rest of, uh, of, of human history. And so uh, his change of name to Jude. He further describes himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And the word that is used for bond slave there in, in the original language is doulos. It's interesting, the apostle Paul called himself a doulos of Jesus Christ. Peter, a doulos of Jesus Christ. James, a doulos of Jesus Christ. Jude does the same thing. The word doulos that he uses, you'll notice he never says, hey, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, listen to me. He never goes there at all in his introduction. He doesn't feel worthy to do that. The, the highest thing he will consider himself to be related to Jesus is his bond servant, which of course is the highest title that any Christian can take in life. And the word doulos, the imagery related to being a bond servant of Christ, the imagery related to doulos is found in the law of Moses, and specifically in the book of Exodus, where if a Jewish person sold themselves into slavery to another Jewish person, and there were all kinds of reasons that a person would sell themselves into slavery, you might have lost your crop that year or for two years, and now you owe an enormous sum to creditors. And so you would need to sell yourself into slavery to raise the money to get out of debt. <clears throat> we all know what it is to have the economy 
run its various cycles in the modern world where you have recessions, times of depression, you have boom times, all of that. And there could be times in Jewish history where there would be famine, there would be drought, it would be difficult to find work, it would be difficult to find food, and that selling myself into servitude to somebody and they would take me on would ensure that I would have food and clothing and shelter during that period. But when a Jewish person sold themselves into slavery to another Jewish person, the law put uh, uh, limitations upon it. He could only be a slave, he or she, for six years and had to be released on the seventh year. And so if the seventh year came and the servant, the doulos, the slave, was about now to be set free and he thought to himself, I will never find a better master on the face of the earth than the master who is my master now. And I choose not to be released from my servitude uh, to him, but I choose now of my own free will to become his servant, his slave, now for the rest of my life. And if a person decided to do that, become a doulos, they would be taken by the master and the elders of the city, they would go to the gates of the city, the slave's uh, earlobe would be put up against the door and all would be run through it, presumably an earring added to it, and that would mark him as a doulos of someone, an outward mark for the rest of his life. But a doulos was made up of three characteristics. They became a bondservant out of love for their master, they did so voluntarily, and it was a lifelong commitment. And that's what Jude is communicating about how he sees himself and the commitment that he has made, uh, not merely to his half-brother, but to Jesus, who is the Christ, uh, as he uh, describes him uh, there. And it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, term that is used, doulos. Some of you have heard this over and over again. But when you stop and now we put it into the context of Jude and how he viewed his relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus, it's beautiful. You notice also in verse one, he, after he introduces himself, he then tells us who the letter is addressed to and, uh, and, uh, and Jude the Holy, and the Holy Spirit through Jude then give this beautiful description of every Christian. You notice there in the second half of verse one, those who are called by God the Father. And the idea of called is called out of the world, out of darkness, out of sin, and into the kingdom of God, and into a kingdom of light, and into uh, salvation. And it's those who have obeyed God's call through the gospel and, and, and through God's offer of salvation Uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, and they say, I want that gospel, I want that salvation, I put my trust uh, in in that. And in doing so, God calls us from one and and into the other. 
So often we can say uh, readily, and, and sometimes I will say it, that I was so happy to find the God of the Bible at the end of my search in life. And there is, there is absolute truth to that. But once we become a Christian and we realize that, wow, my search ended in putting my faith in Jesus Christ, that God had been, and that wasn't just something I did with my own noggin and my own discernment and my own intellect, but that was a process and that was something that God had been involved in all along and calling me uh, to his son. And the reason this called by God the Father is, is significant as a, a way of addressing us as Christians here is because now all of these other voices, all of these false voices were calling these Christians uh, to them into a Christianity that is not marked by the gospel at all. It is not marked by God's word at all. And Jude reminded them, Jude reminds us to stay true to the call that is most important in life. Stay true to the voice that is most important in life. And that is the one that called us into uh, salvation. God's uh, the, 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 true to the most important voice of all, that, that God's call into an authentic, God-defined, Christ-like Christian life. He describes us further as those who are sanctified by God the Father. The word that Jude, Jude uses here for sanctified in the original language is a word that is most often translated holy in the New Testament. And, uh, and the word holy or sanctified means to be set apart completely for God's use. That's what holy means. That's what sanctified uh, means. And that is that God has saved us, as Jude reminds us, God has saved us into a holy life, into a life that will look like Jesus' life morally, practically, spiritually, remembering that Jesus is the definition of holiness in human history. You think about uh, the uh, professing Christianity in churches, and for sure Christians, uh, in the 50s and 60s in the United States of America, where the great definitions and arguments in terms of Holiness had to do with makeup or uh, whether women could wear pants or whether uh, hair length and all of these kind of, uh, you know, litmus tests, tests for spirituality that had nothing to do with genuine uh, holiness. <clears throat> Anything, uh, it, uh, Jesus is the definition of holiness how we see him act, how we see him live, how we see his teaching, uh, how we see him speak. That's the definition uh, of, of holiness. And holiness is a complete privilege to be able to live free, to live life as God has intended human beings uh, to live it. And the Christian life is always and forever to be a sanctified life, a holy life. And you don't just have to take Jude's word for it here. He's not speaking out of the blue. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them and he said, 
Verily, verily, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. To follow the teachings of these that had infiltrated the church that Jude talks about is simply to lead people into bondage of sin. But Jesus went on in that same passage and said, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. It is the freest, most wonderful life a human being can live. On the night before Jesus was crucified, in John chapter 17, as he prayed to uh, the Father, uh, he prayed uh, for you and I, and he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God, Jesus desires a sanctification within our life. And these false teachers and false Christians were coming to Christians both then and now and endeavoring to convince us that uh, sin won't make a slave of you, that true freedom, the true experience of life, uh, the fullest uh, experience of life is found in ignoring God's commandments, in disobeying God's commandments rather than in obeying them. And exactly the opposite of what uh, Jesus taught. And it was a lie then, as Jude declares, and it is a lie yet today. He describes us further as being those who are preserved in Christ Jesus. That is, God has not only saved us, he's not only sanctified us, but he, will, he also preserves us, he keeps us. And this speaks of the security uh, of our salvation as Christians. And so Christians both then and now were surrounded by uh, this uh, great, a world filled with great lewdness is, is the word that Jude uh, uses here within the culture and all kinds of false teachers and false Christians within Christendom who are advocating for the same lewdness. And Jude reminds us that God is going to keep us as Christians through all of it. And one day he is going to deliver us into the glory of heaven where none of these things will uh, exist. Now, the fact that he is going to keep us and preserve us, it doesn't cancel out as he gets to a little later in, in the letter in verse 21. It doesn't cancel out the importance of our own obedience to God. And Jude there in verse 21 speaks of our responsibility to keep ourselves in the love of God. So the entire opening here of his letter is intended to drive home to us as Christians the security of our salvation. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because he knows that this letter is so exhortive and it is so pointed, unmistakably pointed, and for a reason, that he doesn't want a single soft-hearted Christian who loves the Lord and is growing in their relationship with the Lord to think, I am one of these people, and then to begin to doubt their salvation. 
That's not who the letter is written to. It's an entirely different person. He also doesn't want us to think as Christians that because we struggle with sin, who doesn't struggle with sin between now and heaven? We all struggle with sin. And he doesn't want us to think that because we struggle with sin that he is talking uh, to us and condemning us in this letter. The fact that a Christian struggles or contends against sin is a good sign in our lives. But that's a a certain kind of person. The struggle indicates a spiritual life that exists within us. These people have no struggle. They've ended the struggle. And not only do they not endeavor to struggle against sin in their own lives, they endeavor to end the struggle in the lives of other Christians. They're two entirely different people. And Jude wants to make sure that we don't head into this and people who are truly saved end up doubting the fact that they really are and that they'll one day end up in heaven. His greeting as he closes there in verse 2, he uh, declares to them in his prayer that God's mercy, that is God's compassionate kindness would be multiplied to us, that God's peace would be multiplied to us, and that God's love would be multiplied to us. And and he uniquely in the New Testament uses this, uh, speaking of these things as being multiplied to his readers, to us as Christians. And because he recognizes it isn't easy being a Christian when we not only have to, again, resist the air and the lewdness of the unsaved world around us that doesn't pretend to be Christian uh, at all, but we also must resist air and lewdness within the church among those who claim to be Christian and represent uh, Christ, but do not. And we're in a special need of this mercy, this peace, and this uh, love. And so uh, Jude commends us with great compassion uh, to these things in all of their forms. And so we stop there this morning in the introduction uh, to the letter. And so we sit here in the privacy of our own hearts this morning because the stakes are higher than they can be ever anyone like me can ever put into uh, words. And to ask ourselves individually, is Jude's description of these false Christians anything like you and me? Would my Christianity be marked, or your Christianity be marked by, He is my Savior, but He is definitely not my Lord? He is, in my mind, my Savior. But if you were forced to find any marks of lordship, His lordship in my life, you wouldn't be able to find them. I want Him as my Savior, but I ignore all of the moral implications in the Bible of what it means to be a Christian. And if that is me, or that is you this morning, the importance of repenting of that to really, really examine 
who I understand Christ to be, the position that I've given him in my life, a concern and a love for holiness and an influence for holiness within the body of Christ beyond my own life. And if that isn't present, then in some people's lives, it may mean that that person needs to be born again because they've never been born again, only thought they were born again. Or there is this, uh, this uh, lack of a commitment to him, a, uh, a, he is my savior, but he is not my Lord. I don't take holiness seriously. No one would know I was a Christian from the man and the moon if they uh, lived with me morning, noon, and night for 30 years. And then to examine that and to say, do I need to rededicate my life to the relationship with Christ that is described in the Bible? And that is that he is not only our savior, but that he is our Lord. There's always going to be a gap between what we know to be right as Christians and the life that we actually live. That will always exist because God's word is perfect and we are not, not yet. But that gap between what we know to be true from God's word and the life that we actually live should always be narrowing in the course of our Christian life and never enlarging. And that's a large part of what Judah's talking about as well. And so there's a lot of this, this epistle searches in a deep way and in a beautiful way, because who we think of Christ, what we think of Christ, who and what he is in our lives, the stakes for that are like nothing else in the world. They are eternal. And none of us ever wants to find out one day that we were one of these people that Jude wrote this letter about. And here's the crazy thing. If I look at my life and I say, Jesus is my Savior, but He's not my Lord, and I'm okay in the eyes of God on the basis of that. The problem with that is that is a lie that is a leaven in my life. And what will happen is that understanding, wrong understanding of Christianity will merely enlarge in my life until there is no conviction about it and I am absolutely convinced that I am right with God. And that's why that, this kind of thing has to be nipped at the bud within our lives. And usually it has to be pruned out of our lives with something that is as sharp and decisive as uh, Jude's letter to the church here and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, it's important for you to understand, no matter what you've seen of Christians or Christianity in me or in anyone else, for you to understand that God not only saves us into something, the kingdom of God, 
but he saves us out of something in order to do that. And that is the kingdom of the flesh, the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness. Most often we put it this way. We say Jesus saves us out of something and into something. But concerning what Jude is talking about here and how these people are presenting Christianity and salvation, it's, it's the opposite. The importance of knowing that to become a Christian is yes, to be saved into something, but it requires being saved out of something for that to happen and out of unholiness and deliberate sin and, and wickedness and, a, uh, and being a, a, an apologist for living an unholy life within the body of Christ. And so for you, there is this most incredible Christian life, the, the greatest life a person can live, the most incredible privilege of being able to live this life. But that's the deal. You come out of one kingdom and you enter into another kingdom. And there's no loss for that happening at, at, uh, at all. It is a privilege to leave the one and then to enter into the other. And when the Holy Spirit is working in a person's life for salvation, they will never balk at that demand. And the demand is called repentance. They will be eager to leave the bondage of their sin and the emptiness and the meaninglessness of their life to enter into the kingdom of God. And if that's what you're looking for, it's found only one place in the entire world and in human history. And it's found by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and being born again. And if you've never done that, we'll be up in front immediately after the service and we'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning. If you'd like to rededicate your life this morning, we'd be happy to pray with you uh, to do that this morning or pray with you related to any other need that might be in your life. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this kind of clarity of your Holy Spirit through our brother Jude. And we pray that the full intent of the book of Jude and these opening verses, that they would have their full work within each of our lives. Your word tells us that each of us are, uh, everything is open and naked before you with whom we have to do. You see it all so clear, Lord. And whatever has to happen in any of our lives here today, in the light of what Jude is saying, we pray, Lord, that each one of us would listen to that and surrender to that and respond in the way that Jude intends us to respond. And Lord, we thank you for such clarity uh, related to, um, to truth, related such a beautiful defense of what Christianity really is when there's so many confusing signals being sent out into uh, the world, Lord. We're so grateful for this, and we pray that you would use our time today and in the coming weeks, use our time as a fellowship in this epistle 
to forever inoculate us against this uh, false Christianity and false Christians that exist uh, even in our age and their influence is growing. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name as well. Amen.